the last few weeks, I mean, you know, we kind of have things planned out, who's going to speak to what uh, chapters ahead of time, and, and I knew I was going to have this chapter, and um, I had been praying that the Lord would, would lay on my heart what, uh, what to share, and, uh, uh, and um, but it's like I, I didn't hear anything from him for a, a while, and I was just thinking, well, it's a great uh, message, it's a great story, and, and I can go through the story systematically about Abraham and his journey with Isaac, but I'm like, God, uh, what do you want us to take away from this? And so um, just even within the last week, I just kind of um, turned it up to myself and said, God, what do you want me to learn from this passage? And, um, and then, um, I, I mean, I'm very glad God uh, really hit me over the head that um, this test of faith that he tested Abraham with was really a test of obedience. And so um, the title of today's message, message is um, The Test of Obedience. And it's, it's, um, it's a sobering message because um, uh, God really um, kind of took me through the ringer this week in thinking about this area of obedience in my own life and, um, you know, where I'm at in that area of just having gotten lazy uh, in that area. And, um, but hopefully we can go away encouraged today because... Um, even though you might be convicted as well, um, there's some extremely encouraging words I have at the end that we can see from this passage. So um, I wanted to start off by saying that um, I think most of you are familiar with this kid's song, Obedience is the Very Best Way to Show That You Believe. Um, but in case you aren't, um, I'm going to have Troy come up and sing it to you all. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to say the lyrics to you, okay? Um, Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly as the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Of course, that song, it's not, it's not a scripture verse, but there are truths in it that we are going to see from the passage this morning that are very true. So here in chapter 22, Abraham will face again a great test of faith, probably the greatest he's ever experienced in his life. And at this point, um, you know, he's a pretty old man. And um, uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's not like the older we get and uh, maybe the more mature we get in our Christian life that, uh, that the tests kind of level out and God's like, all right, well, you know, you've already been through enough. I'll just let you go. Um, so this is a rhetorical question that I've reserved for really our A&I time at the end, but, but how do you feel about knowing that the most difficult test of your faith may still be ahead of you? That's, that's really a hard question, but this is what's going on in Abraham's life here. So just for context, um, 
Most commentators believe that Abraham may be roughly 120 years old at this point in his life. And um, so you know that he, had, uh, he and Sarah had Isaac when he was about 100 and she was 90. Um, and so that would put Isaac at roughly 20 years old. Some believe that he may have been even older. Um, you'll see that um, the term boy is used in verses 5 and 12 where he's called a boy but it's that same word is translated as young men in verses 3, 5, and 19, referring to the two young men that Abraham took on the journey. And then that same word is also used of King David's mighty men who traveled with him when he was running from Saul. So they were obviously of marriageable age. They could bear arms. And, um, you know, I, I used to think when I was younger, for some reason, that like Abraham was this, like, or Isaac was like this little five-year-old, but as you go through the story and talks about Abraham tell, putting the wood on his back and asking him to carry the wood, you know, you, little five-year-old's not going to be carrying the wood. Um, so the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is that God tests. And that's right here in, in verse 1. It says, after these things, which, as I just stated, really that, just that little phrase, many years are captured in that little phrase. It says, God tested Abraham. So this is a different word than the word tempted, um, as in tempted by sin. The word really has to do with testing the integrity of something, like testing its strength or quality. At my job, um, where I'm in a manufacturing plant, um, uh, it's a routine thing that we test the quality of parts. Um, we routinely test them to make sure that they uh, can meet their intended function. So a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to Albuquerque for two weeks back to back, and um, we were testing parts. Um, some passed, some failed. Um, obviously, the failed ones were scrapped. The past ones we were going to use. Um, and so that's kind of what, uh, what kind of test we're talking about here, testing the, the genuineness of something, the quality of something. Um, another way you might look at it is... Um, you know, if you get some, obviously if you're a man in here and you get some new man toy, like I got this new uh, guitar pedal board and I was just dying to get some time to, to play with it. In our modern day vernacular, we might say something like, let's see what this baby can do. You know, so that's kind of like, we wanted to put it, we want to put it to the test. But in the New Testament, um, in the book of James, James actually notes exactly what kind of test this was and it really was a test of whether Abraham's faith was genuine and saving. Um, it's a kind of faith that is different than mere mental assent, but is unwilling to lean on God in an active way. Um, it's not a faith that's an easy believism, as James is going to say. We're going to look at this passage in a minute, that even demons can engage in where they believe in God and they tremble, but they don't obey him. They don't submit to him. They, they don't really trust him. So um, as I read from this passage in James 2, if you want to turn there, you can. James 2, verses 14 through 26. Um, I think like the words in that song that I quoted in the beginning, this portion of Scripture, if it had a heading, it could be titled, Action is the Key. <clears throat> so here's in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works or action is dead. In other words, Abraham's actions really showed that he was a believer. It demonstrated that he really was trusting God and he was called the friend of God. Some might see verse 24 as counter to being saved by faith, which of course we believe, but in context, what James is teaching is that, that real faith, saving faith, is a faith that works. It's a faith that's, that's not passive. It's not just mental assent, but it's a faith that acts. Um, it's like, um, this is an illustration I heard. Actually, it's, you guys probably heard this illustration about the chair and believing in the chair and sitting in the chair, but this is an illustration I heard recently that actually I like even better. <clears throat> it's um, an illustration of basically believing that a boat um, will save you from drowning in a flood versus getting into the boat. Um, so you might use this when you're talking with people sometime. But um, the first is mental assent. It'd be like, I believe, well, I believe that the boat exists. I believe that the boat floats. I see it floating. Um, but the second is actually trusting the boat. It's getting into the boat. And, of course, we know that the gospel is crying out to people and saying, get in the boat. Don't just stand there and think about the boat. Just don't stand there and know that it can save you, but get in the boat. So what God was doing here, what he was intending to demonstrate in this test for Abraham, which of course Abraham didn't know at the time, was he was putting on display for all to see now and in the future, for our benefit even, the depth of Abraham's faith. And Abraham's faith, or Abraham's passing of the test, really was demonstrated by his obedience to God's voice. And God used this to display his salvation plan, his redemptive plan for all to see. And of course, as I said, when Abraham was commanded to do this and he followed through with it, Abraham had no idea that that was God's purpose for, for this. Um, I know as we go through the passage this morning, Many New Testament connections might come to your mind, um, but we're not going to um, go there this morning. Um, it's not that I'm ignoring them. 
um, but I'm going to save them for next week, as next week we are going to have a communion time, and I thought that would be a great time to use this passage to make all those New Testament connections. So uh, let's move on, and let's consider the nature of this test as we look at this really difficult command. Um, I think as any of you who are parents um, could think of this, I know even as Eric was reading it, you know, um, if you were commanded this as a, as a father, it would be like a punch to the gut that just takes the wind out of you. Um, and there are going to be tests of our faith like this, maybe not exactly like this, of course, but that go to where our hearts are, to where our treasures are, what means most to us, and that's what's going on here. Um, in this case, this command focuses on Abraham's dearest treasure, and God is well aware of it. So let's look at the words, the way that um, God words this command. <clears throat> if we look at um, the next verses here, um, we see that it's threefold, and it's ascending, and it's also decisive. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. So what God is doing here is he's putting a finger on that moment that God fulfilled all of his word, that lifelong promise to Abraham. And um, Abraham, Abraham may have thought that, you know, he'd already been through a test, right? He'd already been through a test of waiting years and years for the son of promise. And then at 100 years old, he gets this miracle baby, um, where God created life from a dead womb. And, um, and Abraham could have thought that was the high point of his life, and that that was the purpose of, of Isaac. God created Isaac so that he could um, perpetuate the line of Abraham and make many nations out of him. And, um, and yet, God had another purpose for Isaac's life. And... Um, and so Abraham didn't know this. So God wanted to take this gift, this blessing, and use it as an illustration. And so he tells the old man, that son that you waited all these years for, take that son and go offer him up as a burnt offering. And God even names the name of his son Isaac, lest Abraham find another way out, which in the past we've seen Abraham can kind of find ways out of things sometimes with his wife, calling him, calling her his sister. So God names him Isaac so that he couldn't accidentally maybe take Ishmael <laughs> and use him. Um, so I don't think Abraham was expecting any command remotely close to this. He had to have been completely taken off guard. Um, and this was an extremely emotional command. Um, you know this boy is the mother of his apple's eye. Um, I can't even imagine the conversation that he would have to have with Sarah. I mean, if I had this command, I'd probably want to just wake up the next morning and say, hey, we're going for a walk. I wouldn't want to have the conversation to say what God asked me to do with your son. Um, but you know, this boy was greatly dear to both his father and mother. Um, I don't think God scolds us for enjoying the things that he created for enjoyment on the earth. Obviously, 
He created these things for our enjoyment, um, marriage relationships, friendships, uh, children, our jobs, if we enjoy them, uh, the places we live. Uh, but I think he becomes concerned when any of these things begin to compete with our love and affection for him. And God has a way to work in our lives such that he can put a finger on things that we may begin to value more than him that are competing for the throne of our hearts. Um, I'm not saying that's what was going on here, um, but I know in our, in our own humanness that uh, that's a tendency we can have. In fact, as I was just thinking through obedience this week, I, I, I even asked myself the question, I was like, um, does God test us with things? That, does that make sense? Would God test us with things, with stuff, like good stuff, stuff that he brings into our lives? And the, conclu the conclusion I came to was yes. Um, throughout my lifetime, God has richly blessed me with relationships, with children, now grandchildren, a good job, etc. But I realized, as I look back at my younger years, um, when I did not have as many blessings, if you want to call them that, as it were, um, there were less things competing for the affection of my heart. And now that I have more of these blessings in my life, there are more things competing for the affection of my heart. And of course, the blame is not on God at all. Um, but the blame is when you or I take hold of those blessings and put them into the place of things that we can't live without. When we, when we tend to love these things to the point where it's like, I can't, God, don't take that away. I can't live without it. We have to make sure that nothing or no one should be in that place except for God himself. Because as we all know, every other thing you or I possess can be taken from us. Um, I've got a nice office job now, which affords me some level of comfortability of not having to bust my back to provide for my family. Uh, but what if that was taken away and I had to go back to doing physical labor like I did 20-something years ago? Um, if that happened, would my faith be shattered? I mean, I, I thought about that, you know. Um, I wouldn't like it. <laughs> but I don't think my faith would be shattered. I love all my children dearly, but if they were taken away, would my faith be shattered? That is why it's so important to build your life on your relationship with God, because that is the only thing that will never, ever be taken away. So as dear as any relationships or things are to us, God must always be dearer yet. <clears throat> so as we continue on in the passage here, um, we see that um, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah. And I just want to point out here that this command to go, it's the same word that Abraham would have been familiar with. It was the same word that God used when God told Abraham to go in Genesis 12.1 when he said, go 
from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And it's also the same word that God used in Genesis 17, 1, when God said to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk or go before me. So perhaps when Abraham heard this word, it could have registered in his mind as just a continuation of the same journey that Abraham had been going on for all these years, um, that God was hearkening back to the first calling of Abraham. Or maybe like in the case of Genesis 17, where he, he said, walk before me, that was when he made this covenant with Abraham and uh, that gave him the sign of circumcision that maybe um, it might have registered in Abraham's mind that perhaps God was going to do something special. Um, so regarding this location, Moriah, um, it's not mentioned again in the Old Testament until 2 Chronicles. Um, and it's really interesting, but... Um, this land of Moriah, this, this acreage, um, this, where, where this Mount Moriah was, um, it says in 2 Chronicles 3.1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, that's the, the temple mount, the, or the temple, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So David had bought that land actually, um, a while uh, before that time. And then this is where Solomon built the temple. Uh, so we'll talk more about that next week because that's where obviously all Israel did many burnt offerings, did many sacrifices later on. So this is a place of sacred ground. It would have been on the same acreage, um, like I said, as it were, where Abraham was told by God to go to sacrifice Isaac. And then God said he wanted Abraham to offer Isaac up as a burnt offering. Um, this consisted of slaying an animal um, and placing that animal on a fire and burning it completely to ashes. This was not a pretty thing that God was asking Abraham to do. This was violent. This was bloody. And we're told in verse 18, and we'll get, we'll get there, but I'm just jumping ahead, that Abraham obeyed. And, um, you know, sometimes when you're getting ready to do messages like this, you're doing word searches and things like that. It turns out this is the first time the word obeyed, obey, obedience, any form of the word is even used in the whole Bible. Um, and you'd think like, oh, wasn't it used with Noah or Adam and Eve or something? But no, this is the first time it wasn't even used in Abraham's life until now. So, um, so that's just really interesting. Um, so now I'm going to go ahead and read here. <clears throat> so um, verse 3, 4, and 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. <clears throat> then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
So in verse 5, we're told that Abraham tells his two young men that I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Um, I'm going to read this verse from the NIV translation uh, because I think it captures the phrasing uh, better in the sense to where this um, uh, the verbs here are actually in the first person. And so uh, this is how it's stated in the NIV. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Um, and that's important. And I'll explain this as we, as we look at what Hebrews says about this um, passage. So at first reading, you might think that um, Abraham is just lying again to his, to his servants, right? Because he's been known to do that before. But, um, but I, don't, I don't think so. So as we read Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, you might want to write that one down. Um, I have it in my notes here, so I'll just read it to you. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is why that phrase is so important. Because somewhere from the time that Abraham received that command, three days ago, or somewhere in that three-day journey, Abraham became convinced in his faith that even though he would kill a son, God would raise him from the dead. Um, when he says, we will return, that statement, it was not a lie. It wasn't a deception. It was a statement that was full of faith. He knew what God had told him. He knew these promises that God had given him, and he was believing in those promises. Um, he knew that through this child, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He knew that God would prosper his seed through this child. So I have to believe that he concluded, when I slay this child, I'm going to be a firsthand witness to a resurrection. And those are the eyes of faith. And that is what Abraham is concluding here. So now, again, a lot of times, you know, in the Bible, and that's what I, my, I have a son who kind of dabbles in, in making films and short films and stuff. And I've always wanted him to take stories, Bible stories, and like make them into video productions because you read a, this story and it's, um, you know, it's on one page in your Bible and you read it and you're done reading it in, in five minutes, you know, but it's so much more intense than that. It's so much more emotional than that. And you, sometimes you just can't capture that in just black and white words on the page. So before we assume that this was easy for Abraham to even come to this conclusion, right? Um, I think we've seen enough from Abraham's life to know that Abraham is not superhuman. And you got to think that, you know, he was, it was three days. That's a long time that he's walking and he's on this journey and maybe he's rehearsing these verses in his mind. God, how could this be? Um, 
Can we not identify with the fact that when Abraham first heard the command, um, he would have had normal thoughts like, how can this be the God I know? Um, this would nullify your promise that offspring would come through my son Isaac. God, how can you make good on your promise if I'm supposed to kill my son? I mean, these are even thoughts that we have as just readers of it, you know, um, from outside the text. Um, there's a theological disconnect that happens. And I think if I ask for a show of hands, which I'm not going to, many of you would say you've experienced this before when tested or when God asks you to do something, you know that he's prompting you to do something, especially in cases where God seems to touch things that you hold dear. Yours and my struggle is how this thing that God is asking of me fits with what you know about God. Um, you're like, God, this, this doesn't seem like you. God, this doesn't seem like you're making good on your promises. This seems like you're cruel instead of loving. Or this seems like you're not taking care of me. How can this possibly bring anything good? God, how can you possibly be who you reveal yourself to be if you're treating me this way? Have you been there before? This is the great struggle when we're tested. It's not just whether or not one feels sick with the chemo. It's not just whether one feels grief with the death of a loved one. It's what it means in terms of one's relationship with God. What do we often do when we can't figure out the paradoxes that we face? I'm, I'm ashamed to say this even, but I'll tell you what I typically do. I maintain the status quo. I, I end up in this circle of this paralysis of analysis, asking these questions over and over. Um, but here's what Abraham did. Here's what Abraham did and does in this passage. He trusts God, and what does that look like? Again, back to that song, action is the key. It involved following through and obedience in taking action. He, I think it's just amazing that it's like God said, here I am, Abraham says, here I am. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I mean, it was, again, that song, um, do it immediately, right? Doing exactly as the Lord commands. Actually, it doesn't say do it immediately. It says doing exactly as the Lord commands, but that's what he did, and he did do it immediately. Um, but he took action. So we need to become people like Abraham, whom when we can't figure out how these paradoxes seem to fit in our mind, that we trust God and we acknowledge that I'm not wise enough to figure out everything that God has already worked out. And I think that actually through Abraham's life and his experience with God, he, he's already been through things like this with the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah where Abraham was not wise enough to understand that situation. Um, he, just, he just obeyed God in it. Um, so just let God be God and let him say what he says and believe it and live by it. And we, need to, we just need to get out of God's head 
and stop trying to tell him what he is thinking. And we need to humbly submit to the truth that his thoughts are above our thoughts. So let's move on to verse um, 7 here. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You fathers, this would rip your heart out, would it not? Um, Getting this question from your son. Um, He and Isaac go on. He lays the wood on Isaac's back. Abraham takes the knife in, in, in one hand and the stuff to start the fire in his other hand. And, and then Isaac says, Dad, I see you've got the knife and I see that you have what's needed to build a fire. Where's the sacrifice? Again, you don't see this in the text, but I cannot imagine Abraham saying these next words without his voice cracking, maybe even through tears. My son, God will provide. And I want to make this point. Literally, literally that, that, that phrase, God will provide, is God will see to it. Okay, that's just another way to, to, to see, to, to think of that phrase. God will provide is literally God will see to it, that there is a lamb. Um, Abraham was not being evasive with his son. Um, again, what is not in the text here is... Um, highly likely to have happened is that at some point Abraham would have had to have had a conversation with Isaac. Um, He would have had to. Son, you are the lamb. Son, you are God's provision. After all, there had to be a point in which Abraham had to bind Isaac, and Isaac, who could have overpowered his, his old father, right, submitted to him and allowed himself to be bound. Um, we're mainly focusing on Abraham's obedience uh, this morning, but look at this amazing faith and obedience of Isaac. Remember, God, God spoke directly to Abraham in this command. He did not speak directly to Isaac. Yet Isaac humbly trusts his father and his father's God. Um, and I think Isaac had to have trusted his father due to Abraham's upright walk with God, or else he could have just thought, the old man is crazy. Um, I'm not doing this. But he allowed himself to be bound, and he willingly laid down in submission on that altar, waiting for his father to cut his throat and offer him as a burnt offering. Um, Just a, a side note, we can talk about it more in our discussion time afterwards, but Um, As just a quick point of application, where is your walk with the Lord this morning? Wouldn't it be great to have others that God has given us influence in their lives, whether it be children, or if we don't have children, friends, co-workers, family members, neighbors, 
to have them trust our God because of witnessing our walk of faith in our great God. Let's move on to verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, if we could just take a minute and just pull ourselves, you know, we've had front row seats to what's going on here but we're just going to pull ourselves out for a minute and, um, and put ourselves up at the 30,000-foot level, but wherever God's viewpoint is, maybe that's 100,000-foot level. I don't know where it is. But um, we know from God's point of view, right, from the very beginning, Isaac was never going to be harmed. Um, even if even if Abraham in his old age was like, the angel was like, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham was like, what? I can't hear. You know, I mean, and he couldn't hear. I mean, the angel would have been like, nope, that's not going anywhere. Um, what God intended was to create a picture of his love for his son and how the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God was going to be a substitutionary rescue for the human race. And we're going to make more connections like this next week. But Abraham did not know that, did he? And when Abraham raised that knife, he certainly thought, I am going to slay my son, then I'm going to set him on fire, and then somehow God is going to raise his charred remnants to new life, and we will return and go home. But he didn't have to do that because God stopped it and provided a substitute. What is the significance of God will provide? Abraham is saying God has provided this substitutionary sacrifice in the place of my son. So Abraham took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So we call the name of that place the Lord will provide, which again I said literally means the Lord will see to it things we can't figure out, and this is why I like that literal meaning of it, things we can't figure out, the Lord will see to it. The trials that seem to topple our faith and our whole confidence in God, the Lord will see to it. The salvation of the race depends on this boy living, and yet he's been commanded to be killed, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We don't really sing many. I mean, we do sing some old hymns, but I have yet to, to where we, it's probably been a really long time since we've sang a song about um, Jesus uh, being the vicarious or the word vicarious. Um, anyway, if you ever come across a hymn or you hear a hymn, it talks about 
the word vicar or vicarious, that word um, means substitute. Um, so it'd be like uh, when I was a senior in high school and played baseball. And um, Actually, I started as a junior, but for some reason, by the time I became a senior, I was a bench warmer. Uh, but like if the coach was like, hey, Herman, get in there, uh, play third base, then I was basically like the vicar for the other guy at third base. I was his substitute. And that's what Jesus was for us. That's what this ram was for Isaac. Um, let's finish up with <clears throat> verses 15 through 19. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven <clears throat> and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. These words um, and this blessing are the strongest forms of Hebrew words. It's like, um, surely, um, surely I will bless you. Surely I will multiply your offspring. Um, there's the strongest words that they could come up with. Um, in other words, the angel of the Lord is saying, this is most certainly going to happen. Um, now, this promise probably looks familiar to you because God had already promised that he would do this. So I don't think it's like God is saying, okay, Abraham, now that you've done this, I really mean business, you know? No, this promise has already been given to Abraham, but I think it's more like a situation like this, right? I've had a hard day at work. I come home, open the door. I smell, oh, what's that? Fried pork chops, mashed potatoes and gravy and corn. And I'm like, that's my favorite meal. And I'm like, honey, I really love you. Of course, I've already expressed my love to my wife and even promised it at our wedding, but it's like I'm doubling down on it because of what she did. And it really warms my heart. Um, and I think of this as God like doubling down on his promises to Abraham when he restates these promises and then says, because you obeyed my voice. It's like God was super delighted that Abraham demonstrated that he believed the promises despite what his heart or mind may have been telling him um, otherwise. God had not abandoned his promises when he made this difficult command to Abraham. Rather, he intended to affirm them and to strengthen them the test of trust is our leaning hard on God, even when it seems ridiculous to do so. The test of trust, the test of faith, really is obedience. It really comes down to that. Um, I asked myself again this question this week, you know, as God was dealing with me. I was like, why did Abraham obey? Why did he not just say, nah, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all. 
Well, it's because he, in my opinion, this is the conclusion I came to, he had such a high value on his relationship with God. He honored God very highly. He loved God very much. Um, and the only thing I could liken it to was um, if a son or daughter or spouse called, um, called you in the middle of the night with a need, say they were, their car left them stranded somewhere in the city, um, and they called you and said, Dad, could you please come and help me? I need to be picked up or I need my tire chains changed. Would your response be, nah, I'm in bed right now and it's kind of comfy and warm and um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, of course, of course you wouldn't. Um, I, at least I don't think any loving person would. <laughs> because why? Because you highly value your relationship with them. You love them. And that's kind of what I see Abraham doing here. Um, obedience is not comfortable. God never said it would be comfortable. Um, obedience is not easy. Obedience can be painful. We'll talk about this more next week, but it talks about how Jesus learned obedience through suffering. But I want to close by sharing what I think is the best news about obedience that we see in this passage, and I think it applies to us today, and I'm hopeful that it will really be an encouragement and motivation to us. <clears throat> the reality is when God tests our faith and he calls on us to obey him, even in the face of impossible odds, in the face of what may be heart-wrenching, our yielding to him and our trusting him no matter what, just like here with Abraham, who didn't know the linkage of his obedience, but when we obey him, it in some way links to his big plan, um, his salvation plan, his redemptive plan. It links to the gospel. Um, when we obey God, it demonstrates to the world how reliable God is, how valuable he is, and it links to what God is doing and calling out a people for his name that they would go to such great lengths to serve him in the face of great suffering. And I think we've seen this throughout the whole Genesis series. I mean, in every case where, where these men of God or, or anyone, you know, they, they would obey God, it is connected. And you, I think we see this even through the whole Bible. It's, it's all linked to God's redemptive plan. And I think if we could understand that when God is asking something of us, asking something, asking us to to obey him, asking us to do something, if we could get in our minds that like, this is linked to the gospel in some way. This is linked to his bigger plan. This is linked to his redemptive story. Um, to me, that's very motivational. To me, that's, yeah, maybe he wants me to talk to this person. I, I was talking with um, one of my sons yesterday, and actually it was... It was really a, a sad conversation. Um, he was in the Marines, and um, a lot of Marines come home from deployment, and they commit suicide. <clears throat> and um, a guy that was his roommate uh, for a period of time in the Marines uh, 
had just committed suicide a couple days ago. <clears throat> and, um, and so it was weighing heavy on him. And, um, and we were just talking about um, sharing the gospel with people and, and what, what holds us back from sharing the gospel with people. And, um, and a lot of times it's because we're thinking, you know, oh, how's that person going to respond? You know, are they going to ridicule me? Or are they going to make fun of me or, 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 or something? But in light of what I just shared here, if, if you think about this story with Abraham, right? I don't know, maybe his nearest neighbor was 100 miles away. I don't know. But let's just say he had neighbors, right? And let's just say he went, I mean, even if his neighbors got wind of what he was doing here, right? Wouldn't they say, man, you are a cuckoo. What are you, what are you doing? You're going to kill your son? I mean, that the, he would be ridiculed to death. I mean, but yet it had a purpose in God's redemptive plan. And, and I think even if, if God is prompting us to, to open our mouths and share the gospel with somebody and all we get is ridicule in return, somehow that is linked to his bigger plan, even in that person's response. Because maybe God has a plan to where someone later on is going to come in or something's going to happen to that person. Somehow that person is going to remember I remember that person talking to me. I remember I ridiculed them. But, I mean, it's, it's all part of God's plan. Anytime God's asking us to do something, we have to understand that it's part of God's plan. And if, I think if we think of, of, of obeying God that way, I don't know, to me that's just encouraging, encouraging to me. Um, I know that we might not have the same exact role that Abraham or Isaac had, but nonetheless, if we belong to God, our submission and faith to God is difficult commands, our willingness to sacrifice our dearest treasures, which sometimes is our reputation even, uh, for his glory to obey him testifies to a gospel and to a redemption that is the most important thing happening to all of human history. And I think that we can encourage one another to obey him. Um, Again, this week, as I was thinking about this in light of obedience, I remember where God was the one who said, to obey is better than sacrifice. So in conclusion, the answer to the test of faith, the answer to the question is the test of trust really is obedience. Obedience really is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly as the Lord commands Action really is the key, not feelings. We can't wait until we feel like obeying or we have figured it all out. And I just want to close with <clears throat> reading this verse from Romans 16.25. Um, you can just jot that down, look it up later. Um, now all glory to God who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says, this message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time, but now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too
too might believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I think of the verse you reminded me of this week that says, without faith it is impossible to please you. And in light of the things we talked about this morning, faith isn't just a stagnant, um, passive status quo thing that doesn't move. Um, Obedience is the demonstration of faith. So really, um, without faith, it is impossible to please you. So really, without action, without our faith having action, it is impossible to please you. I can't just say that I have faith and there be no action. So God, I, I pray, God, that you would help us all. God, as I, as I even share, God, I'm ashamed of how... Um, Oftentimes, when, when you ask things, I, I tend to want to analyze and end up paralyzed in a cycle of analyzing. And so I just remain in this status quo. And <clears throat> God, I pray that you would help us all to be more like Abraham. I pray that you would help us all to be doers of the word, not hearers only. God, I pray that you would strengthen us. Um, you would strengthen us with your grace, God. You would um, as you you would continue to sanctify us as you promised to do, and to make us more like your son, who um, obviously humbly submitted to you and obeyed everything you asked him to do. I pray that you would strengthen us and give us the grace to become more like your son. Um, and when we talk about growing in faith, God, I pray that our faith would grow in like this, in, in, in action, not just Bible knowledge. Um, so God, we, we, we really need your help, God. We, we cry out to you for help. God, as, 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 as humans that uh, are, are weak, and uh, you said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God, I pray that you would um, strengthen us to, to be obedient children. In Jesus' name, amen.